This podcast contains mature language and descriptions of sexual assault. For as long as he can remember, John Shapiro has been having the same nightmare. Someone, or really something, is coming for him. He can't see it, but he can feel it. So the recurring nightmare I've been having for years and years and years, it was always in the same thing. There was, it was an evil force, an evil presence, and I was cornered. Late one night, about a year ago, John called me to talk about it. I couldn't run, I couldn't fight it, and the only way I could help was to scream for help. And in my dream, I would go to scream and I'd have no voice. The nightmare always ended the same way. I'd always wake up with my wife waking me up and I'd actually be screaming in my, in, you know, like out loud in my bed. And I, I used to have those a lot. For years, nights were filled with anxiety. I was always in alert mode because it was so dark that night and I never felt safe again at night. That dark night John's talking about, it's something that happened 40 years ago. Something that changed him forever. I'd first met John a few months earlier at his office above a restaurant he owns near L.A. He'd described some uncomfortable memories during that first meeting, memories that were still slowly coming back to him. Back when I was 14, I buried those memories pretty bad. I can't really remember those ones. I could tell John was in a lot of pain. It turns out he'd struggled for years with alcohol and drugs, and our first talk had really affected him. I started drinking a lot after um, the interview, and... and, uh, You know, shit was going bad for me fast. But soon after, he met a trauma specialist and started going to her for therapy. He told her the same thing he told me when we first met. He'd been molested by a counselor at a sports camp way back in the 70s. John wanted to unbury those memories, to face them down and get them under control. And with help from that therapist, everything from that night came flooding back. The soccer field, the pitch black woods the feeling of being utterly helpless. And that's why he called me late that night. He needed to tell me the rest of the story. I knew something bad was going to happen, and I couldn't run away from him because he was, you know, an Olympic athlete. He was bigger and stronger than me. I was only 14. He was a man. And I remember thinking, if I scream, nobody can hear me. And so that's where that dream was coming from all these years. That evil force from his nightmares, it had a face. And it had a name, Conrad. Conrad Montgomery Avondale Mainwaring. For ESPN, I'm your host, Mike Kessler. You're listening to The Running Man. Over the next four episodes, I'm going to tell you the story of Conrad Mainwaring, a former Olympian accused of abusing dozens of boys and young men at high schools and major colleges across at least four states over the past 45 years. It's the story of our year-long investigation, which finally brought him out of the shadows, and how his accusers banded together to stop him. Everybody was drawn to him. I think he was very good at sucking you in very quickly. I remember him saying to me, like, what would be the most difficult thing you'd have to do right now? We all think we, we should be able to see betrayal or manipulation coming. He said, Conrad made me have sex with him. I, I really think of him as a killer. We have more than 40 men who say they were abused as young men or boys 
Bayou at Camp Greylock, Colgate, Syracuse, around UCLA. How many boys have you molested in your life? I know at least five, maybe six. How do you do it? How do you get these boys to believe in you so much? This is episode one, Meeting Conrad. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. My reporting partner, Mark Fainaruwada, and I spent the last year and a half investigating a man I can almost guarantee you've never heard of. Conrad Mainwaring was an Olympian back in the 70s. Later, he trained a two-time Olympic gold medalist. But mostly, he trained kids, hundreds of boys and young men. He's the man who found them when they were young and impressionable and blinded by ambition. The person who convinced them they could achieve athletic greatness. Told them they could beat Olympians, just like him. Do exactly what I tell you, he'd say. No questions asked. Just trust me. And so, they did. I'm an investigative reporter, and this story came to me the same way a lot of stories have over the years. I got a tip. I'm Andrew Zenoff, and I currently live in Marin, California, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge a few minutes. Andrew and I aren't close friends, but our wives are. I mostly see him at weddings. He had a story to tell. This had been, you know, stirring for more than 30 years. Andrew's wife had an idea. She said, well, you know, you know, Mike Kessler uh, would be exactly the kind of reporter you'd want for something like this. Why don't you reach out to Mike? So Andrew sent me a text. He had something personal to share about his family. I was curious, of course, so I called him. And he started telling me about his older brother. Uh, His name is Victor. And, uh... It had been revealed by him uh, to my mom and our family that he had been molested uh, each summer when he was at uh, camp, at at Camp Greylock uh, in in Massachusetts. He told me the person who'd abused his brother was an Olympian named Conrad Mainwaring. Greylock was a sports camp, and Conrad had been a counselor there. He was a mythological figure at the camp (laughs) to these kids, to all of us. It was a sad story, but it was four decades old. I told Andrew I wasn't sure what I could do with it. But then he told me the rest of the story, that Conrad was alive and might still be coaching, and that there were other victims, potentially dozens of them, and recent ones too. That changed everything for me. Now I knew I had to do the story. But as a freelance reporter, I needed to find an outlet to publish it. I pitched it to ESPN. They seemed like a perfect fit for this kind of thing. And they went for it. That's when they partnered me with another reporter, Mark Vayneruwada. Early in 2019, Mark visited the home of Andrew and Victor's mom, Nisha Zenoff. Nisha's in her late 70s. She lives in Tiburon, California, just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. It's beautiful there. You can see the water from her living room window. Nisha sat on the couch next to her dog, a yellow lab named Pumpkin. She showed Mark some old pictures of Victor. Yeah. So this, yeah. One, this is the three of us. Oh, this is a good one. This is me 
Victor, Andrew, and Faye. Oh, that's there a, you see the young Faye. That's adorable. Victor was a bushy blonde, free-spirited, tan kid who always seemed happy in photos. Everybody loved Victor. We'd say old people and young people were always attracted to Victor. He smiled a lot. He was happy, had that dimple. He was easygoing. Victor struggled a bit in school and with his self-esteem. He had dyslexia, but with sports, he shined. Basketball, tennis, soccer, didn't matter. Soccer, especially. I had just the pictures of them on the soccer field and yeah. skiing. They loved yeah. to ski. Okay. And they were out on their bikes all the time, playing basketball in different people's yards. Right. And, oh, yeah, okay. very athletic. In the mid-'70s, the Zenoffs lived in New Jersey, and Nisha and her husband, David, were looking for a camp to send the boys that wasn't too far from home. That's how they found Camp Greylock. The camp is a utopia for boys who love sports. It's got baseball and soccer and football fields. It's surrounded by woods and set beside a lake. Andrew said camp was always the highlight of the year. All the kids would meet outside in New York City. They'd say goodbye to their parents. Then they'd pile on the bus and make a racket all the way up to Beckett, Mass. You know, the, the, the smell of the Berkshires in the summer had a very specific, you know, beautiful smell of the, the, the grass and the trees. And it, it definitely was the sort of highlight of the year, waiting to get to camp and then going to camp. The Zenoff boys went to Greylock for a few summers in the mid-70s, starting when Andrew was 10 and Victor was 12. And it seemed like Victor always ended up with Conrad as his counselor. Andrew was with the younger kids, but... He knew how cool it was for his brother just to be around Conrad. The vibe was everybody admired Conrad. And he was a, you know, a, a unique uh, presence at that camp um, because of how he looked and because of his um, Olympic feet. All the boys looked up to Conrad, and Victor was no exception. Yes, I can remember my brother talking about Conrad and how incredible he was and he he could he could jump up and kick his foot and touch the top of a soccer goal post and uh, you know he could do all kinds of like incredible you know athletic feats and my brother was just you know wowed by that and now he thought he was the greatest person on the planet. Victor and Conrad became close, so close that after Victor's first summer at camp, Conrad came to visit him and his family in New Jersey. And I remember us sitting in the breakfast room and I remember the wallpaper and Conrad came over and we had a wonderful conversation. Do you remember first impressions? Uh, oh, I thought thoughts? he was friendly and handsome, lovely, and I thought, what a great influence. But over the next few years, Victor changed. That easygoing, athletic kid, he took a turn. Everyone could feel it. Something was just off. He started acting out, falling behind with schoolwork. Here's Andrew again. He started getting into trouble. You know, he started getting into drugs uh, and, and doing lots of reckless things. And it always kind of stood out because, you know, we had two very loving parents. We had a very loving family. Victor got arrested for stealing. He started growing weed in his room, dropping acid, using cocaine. He crashed his Volkswagen a month after he turned 16. So Nisha and David got him something safer. A used police car. Of course, it went faster than anything possible. So that was really a parent's really stupidity. He got pulled over for going over 100 miles an hour with his younger sister Faye in the car. 
and no seatbelts on. It was clear that Victor was on a self-destructive path. It's just not clear he was conscious of what he was doing. Well, suicidal, I mean, he never said, I want to kill myself, at least to me, or I want to die. That was never verbally expressed. But when a child drives fast, or when a child takes a lot of serious drugs, or when they get arrested for stealing, I mean, there is that part of him that didn't feel like it had the right, the brakes. Soon, family dinners were all about Victor, why he was sneaking out, skipping school. Nisha and David sent him to a therapist, tried to get him sober, but nothing worked. By this point, the family had moved to Northern California. They'd get late night phone calls from cops across the Bay Area, asking if they knew Victor Zenoff. I can remember like sometimes like crying and ask him like why he's doing all these things. Like, like why, you know, why, why are you doing this? It was so hard for me to make sense of it and very painful. The whole family was struggling with it, especially Nisha. She was only 21 when she'd had Victor and he sometimes treated her like a close friend, even a confidant. So one night, not too long after high school graduation, Victor and Nisha got to talking. He'd been packing for a camping trip in Yosemite, and he took a break for dinner. It was just the two of them. And out of the blue, he asked her what she thought of gay people. And I was like, what do you mean? What do I think of gay people? And I said, well, I think love is love. Of course, Nisha wanted to know why he was asking. And he said, well, there's something that happened at camp. And I said, well, what happened, honey? Do you remember Conrad? And I said, of course, your counselor. He said, Conrad made me have sex with him. Nisha's not sure about the details. She just knows what Victor told her, that Conrad forced him to have sex starting when he was 12 years old. And I said, oh, honey, oh my God, I'm so sorry. What happened? What happened? How are you? How, How come you kept this a secret all these years? He said, I was scared to tell. He said... Conrad told me that if I had sex with him, I would grow up to be a big, strong man. So I said, well, Victor, where is he now? What, you know, that's, that's a crime, what he did to you at your young age to molest you, be a perpetrator, take away your innocence, confuse you sexually, That's horrible. That is a crime. After Victor confided in Nisha, he left town for Yosemite. It was supposed to be a short trip with a friend he'd met at a Grateful Dead show. And I said, oh, honey, please be careful. Please be careful. He wanted to hitchhike, and and he said, Mom, don't worry. I don't want to die. A few nights later, there was a knock at Nisha's door. She opened it to find two policemen. They had terrible news. Victor was dead. He and his friend had been on a hiking trail in Yosemite when Victor started running downhill, then tripped and fell 600 feet. His death was ruled an accident. And then the boy said that he heard when Victor tripped and fell that he yelled, Yahoo! 
And he used to yell that when he was jumping off a diving board. I mean, I obsessed over, did he think he was jumping off a jumping board? Was he drunk from, not alcohol, but was he on LSD trip? Right. Was he, what he was on? The coroner didn't find any drugs or alcohol in Victor's system, but he'd clearly become reckless over the years. Nisha just couldn't make sense of it. Living with the death of a child is living with many unanswered questions that you have to make up your own story that you can live with. And everybody in the family makes up their own story. After Victor's death, Conrad was inescapably linked to the Zenoff family. For a while, Nisha swore she'd go after him. We're going to find this man and get him in jail, get his butt in jail and find out how many other people he's done this to, because it definitely had an effect on Victor's psyche, his self-esteem. I, I really think of him as a killer. I mean, that's pretty strong, because I don't think he's killed anybody. But somehow he's killed the... the I, I feel like he killed Victor's spirit. But in the end, the family was too consumed by grief. Dealing with Victor's death was hard enough. Going after Conrad, they just didn't have it in them. Still, Andrew could never let it go. For decades, Conrad's presence hovered over him like a thick fog. And he wondered the same thing his mother did. What if there were other victims? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We started this episode with John Shapiro, the guy who had the nightmares. Nightmares he eventually realized were about Conrad. John first met Conrad at Camp Greylock in the mid-70s, around the same time the Zenoff boys had been there. He was super friendly, super energetic, um, and very outgoing, especially towards the kids. John was a regular at Greylock. He went every summer, starting when he was in grade school. They did a really good job of bringing in a lot of different coaches and giving you exposure to a lot of different sports. It was the first time I was exposed to soccer and archery, and they had good tennis coaches. And I started going when I believe I was about eight years old. And the bunk that I started with, we all became friends. John and all the other campers seemed to worship Conrad. He had a big, gappy smile and a bigger personality. I remember for sure meeting him in 1976 when he competed in the Olympics. Even though Conrad had grown up in England, he'd run for the Antigua national team because that's where he was born. He'd competed in two hurdling events, and the fact that he finished last in both didn't matter to the boys at camp. Conrad was an Olympian, so that made him pretty much the coolest guy around. And because he grew up in England, he even sounded cool. He would speak, and then all these kids would rush to talk to him afterwards. Conrad was not shy about talking up his Olympic credentials. He'd carry around this satchel, and then he'd pull out pictures of famous athletes to show the campers. One day, he arrived at camp wearing an outfit from the Olympics. There's a picture from that day in the camp yearbook. You can see him showing off what looks like a participation medal. 
The kids are swarming him. They look awestruck. Conrad was charismatic in every way. He would get down low and look to you eye to eye and take you seriously instead of as a kid. But he also had a, a genuine childlike part of his personality that drew you to him. So he, oh, not just me, everybody was drawn to him. And the more drawn they were to Conrad, the more they listened. So when he told them that being a pro athlete was right there at their fingertips, of course they believed him. As far as the boys were concerned, Conrad's Olympic status was contagious. John was a great athlete. Even though Conrad worked with the older kids, he still noticed John. I was always surprised that he was watching me. So I felt great. I was like, wow, he's paying me attention. And so when certain times when we would walk um, and camp maybe to eat or something and he would go out of his way to say hello to me, it was exciting for me. A few summers later, when John was 14, Conrad told him about a special group of athletes he coached. They were handpicked, only the best. He called his group the squad, and he asked John to join. John can't remember exactly what Conrad said. He just remembers he was excited to train with an Olympian. He would ask me what my goals were, and I would tell him I wanted to be a professional football player. And then he's like, you're one of the few people, you could do it, but you have to do these things. He always started out on it with how sports is 75% mental and, and your athletic gifts really don't count if you're not sh- strong enough mentally. Conrad told them that mental strength was the key to unlocking their athletic potential. Almost right away, Conrad told John he had some special training methods, tricks that would make him mentally tough, like all the best athletes. And so, one night after dinner, when John was hanging out with some other campers, Conrad went and found him. For some reason, I don't know why, I guess he, he pulled me out of the activity and brought me, and we, we had, it was about a five-minute walk to this field. So this soccer field was... It was a good 10 minutes from the bunks, and it was maybe five minutes from where we ate. And so it was separate, and it was apart. At first, John thought it was a special nighttime training session. He was excited. I was under the understanding that we were going to train with other of the squad members. But as they walked toward the field, it got really dark, and he realized they were alone. So there was two soccer goals. One of the soccer goals was right adjacent to like a wooded area. And so he took me to that wooded area and took me back there and was kind of blocking my way out. I got a bad feeling because there was nobody else there. He told John they were about to do some important training, but John could sense that something wasn't right. He started to feel trapped, helpless. It's like a sinking feeling in your gut, like... I can imagine what it's like, uh, you know, when you're going down in an airplane and the airplane's diving into the sea and you just realize this is it. John's mind was racing. How do I get out of this? Then, Conrad asked him a weird question. What would be the most difficult thing you'd have to do right now? John froze. Like, I knew something bad was going to happen and I couldn't run away from him because he was... You know, an Olympic athlete, he was bigger and stronger than me. I was only 14, he was a man. And I remember thinking, if I scream, nobody can hear me. Think about this for a minute. You're a boy who loves sports more than anything in the world. You have dreams of being a pro football player and you worship this Olympian who's taken you under his wing. What would you do? John stammered, trying to process what was happening. 
I remember my mind scanning, like, how do I get out of this? And there was just, I couldn't, I couldn't think of a way out. And then, he says, Conrad kissed him. I should say that the men who ran the camp when Conrad worked there are dead. The camp's current owners didn't return my calls or emails. But I did hear from a lawyer who said the current owners of the camp never had any affiliation whatsoever with Conrad. John doesn't remember if anything else happened that night. He thinks that after the kiss, he and Conrad might have walked back to the bunks in silence. Camp was about to end, and John figured he'd never see Conrad again. But really, it was only the beginning for John. The beginning of a dynamic between coach and athlete, between a charismatic man and an impressionable boy. I legitimately hated being under his spell, even though I was twist. It was twisting for me. Like, I can't, I have to stay with him or I'm going to lose all my success. And as Mark and I would learn, there were many others who fell under Conrad's spell. Not just kids who went to Camp Greylock, but dozens of boys and young men at high schools and colleges all over the country. And he got upset and said, no, you're tight today. You need this. And then, so I just, I went along with it because he was the coach. I believed the lessons, I guess, really. I believed that it had some sort of benefit in my life. So he has his hand on my upper thigh, and he's saying, show me how much you trust me. That's next time on The Running Man. If you're a victim of sexual abuse and are looking for help, call Rain the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The number for their 24-hour helpline is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673.